Let's just take a moment in prayer and thank God for assembling us together today. He knew that we needed to hear the message that we're about to share from the book of Mark chapter 10. So let's thank him for that message. Um, Let's pray and then I'll begin to teach from Mark chapter 10 this morning. All right. Most holy God, we love you. We know that you are mighty and good and that while we were made in your image, Lord, to reflect your glory, uh, Father, we are much different than you are. You are high and, and above us, God. You are transcendent. But at the same time, Lord, you did not create us and then walk away from us, Lord. You have created us to have fellowship with you. And so help us to understand how the word of God, your revealed truth, helps us to know how we might have fellowship with you through your son, Jesus Christ. And I pray, God, that as we preach from Mark chapter 10, that you would help me to preach with conviction and with passion, Lord. Help us to understand how vital it is for us to trust in the work of Jesus Christ, that the blood that he shed on the cross and the resurrection that he displayed on the third day would give us strength and hope that our sins can be put to death, that our victory can be had in Christ. And so we pray that you would help us to understand these things today and to rejoice in your person and your character. Let the word speak boldly to us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're going to be talking about an episode where Jesus meets with a young man. Someone comes to speak to him, and we're going to be starting in Mark chapter 10 with verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, is this an admirable question for this young man to ask Jesus? The man desires to have eternal life. He understands that the world that we're living in right now is not all there is to existence. He does believe that when one dies, there's a possibility to go on into judgment, but there's also a possibility to go on to something better, into eternal life. And so his desire is to know, how do I get to that eternal life? Now his question assumes something. He assumes that if I'm going to have eternal life, I am the one who's responsible to do something. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And that is often our mindset. We think that if we're going to get something in this life, that we have to work hard for it, that we have to earn it, that we have to achieve it and attain it. And so Jesus is going to actually question his very question by showing him that eternal life is not something that we can earn through our own efforts or actions. It is a useful question, though, because it exposes his understanding or his misunderstanding about what it means to be near to the Lord God. The man, as he approaches Jesus, what is his attitude? Is he kind to Jesus or is he disrespectful? He seems pretty respectful, right? He says, a man ran up to Jesus and knelt before him. So he got down in a posture of respect and humility. And he asked him, he calls him good teacher. Now, Jesus was often interacting with people, many of whom were very rude to him. The Pharisees, who were a sect of religious teachers who had very specific doctrines and were often viewed with much respect in the community, they often did not respect Jesus. They came to him not with humility or with honor, but they came to ask him difficult questions, hoping to get him stuck in a catch-22 and make him look foolish so that they might display their own knowledge and authority as being greater than Christ's. But that's not what this young man does. He comes and he kneels 
before Jesus. He is humble before him and he calls him good teacher. Now in verse 18, Jesus says something a little surprising here. And I think it's, a, it's an interesting part of this, this story of God's interaction or Jesus' interaction with this young man. He says in verse 18, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. No one is good except God alone. So this man thinks he's being kind to Jesus and respectful. And so he says, good teacher. But Jesus challenges that. He says, there really is no one good except for God. Now, Jesus knows what this young man is about to tell him. He knows this man's expectations about why he thinks he's a righteous man. And so he, he includes this one little line that no man is good except for God for a reason. To make him think differently about his own obedience and to make this man think differently about who Jesus is. If no one is good except for God, what is Jesus saying about himself here? He can only be saying one of two different things. If no one is good except for God, then maybe Jesus is saying, I am not good. You are not good. We are not good. But could Jesus be saying that he's not good? Really, that's, that's quite impossible. Matthew 5, 17 says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish the law to, to, to throw them away. I have come to fulfill them. That's what Jesus says. Jesus said that his mission was to come to earth to fulfill all of the law. So while every other human being falls short of the law, Jesus fulfills the law. He keeps it perfectly. Hebrews 4, 16 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who is in every respect been tempted as we are and yet without sin. This is the writer of the book of Hebrews talking about Jesus. He is like a high priest to us, and he is like us because he has been tempted He's lived in a physical body. He's lived on this earth. But the difference between us and Christ is that he never buckled to the temptation of sin. He never broke the law of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, God the Father made God the Son to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus knew no sin. That means that he never practiced sin himself. He knew of it. He was aware of it. But he had never committed sin in his whole life. 1 John 3, 5. You know that he, Jesus, appeared in order to take away sins. And in him, there is no sin. So if Jesus is saying, no one is good except for God. And if we know that Jesus is good, then what is Jesus actually saying about himself? The only other thing he could be saying is that he is, in fact, God in the flesh. Jesus is revealing to us here that if no one is good except for God, and if he is good, that means that he is God. And we see that in various places in Scripture, that Jesus was God eternal who came down to take on a human body and live with us. It says in John 10, verses 29 through 30, My father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father am one. Jesus says, I am one with God. 
John 14, 9 through 11, Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long? And still you do not know me, Philip. Philip asked, When are you going to show me the Father? When, when are we going to get to see God? And he says, Haven't you been with me this whole time? He goes on to say, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else believe on account of the works that I do. And so Jesus there is revealing that he and the Father are one and that he is literally God in a human form. John 20, 28. After Jesus had shown himself to the disciples, after he rose from the grave, he defeated death. And he did the unthinkable. He, he came back to life after the third day. The disciples saw him, but Thomas was away. He was not with them. And so when he came back and reunited with Matthew and with Mark and John and all these other disciples, they said, we've seen Jesus. We saw the resurrected Christ. And Thomas says, well, I can't believe it. I, I just can't believe that he's back alive. I won't believe it until I see him physically myself. And so then a, a, a couple days later, Jesus shows himself to Thomas. And he says, here I am, Thomas. Take your hands and put them into the holes that have been made in my hands and put them into the hole that is in my side. See that I truly am alive, having suffered and died for your sins. And then in John 20, 28, Thomas sees Christ and he cannot deny it anymore. And he answered him and said, my Lord and my God. Thomas is confessing that Jesus is God in the flesh. And so this little verse that seems a little bit out of place, the man just said, good teacher. And Jesus takes an opportunity to show him, I'm more than just a good teacher. I am actually God in the flesh. And in contrast, everyone else besides God fails to be as good as they need to be. And we're going to see that in just a second. Jesus is setting this man up for a reality check. In just a few moments, the young man's going to say something about himself that Jesus is going to challenge. So we're going to return to this little sentence in just a minute. Verse 19 of Mark chapter 10 says, You know the commandments. This is Jesus speaking to the young man. It says, Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Do not honor your father and your mother. What do you notice about all these commands? Where do we find those commands at? In the Ten Commandments, that's right. But we don't see all Ten Commandments there. In fact, we only see the last six commandments. Did you know that the commandments, the Ten Commandments, are set up in such a way that the first part of the Ten Commandments, the first four verses, teach people the law of how we're to interact with God? Don't have any other God before me. Don't make a graven image of God. Do not treat the name of God with vanity. Don't curse using the God's name. And the fourth one, honor the Sabbath and keep it holy because that's the day that you're to worship the Lord God and give Him special recognition. So the first four commandments are all about our vertical relationship with the Father, with God. And then the last six of the Ten Commandments, sometimes called the second table of the law, they're all about how we interact with one another. Don't steal. Don't commit adultery. Don't lie. Don't don't commit murder. Don't covet. Honor your mother and your father. So these six commandments teach us how to interact 
with one another. Jesus says, how have you kept that second table of the law? And the young man is going to answer that in a very interesting way. He said to him, teacher, all of these laws I have kept from my youth. The young man believes that he hasn't broken the laws of God since he was a child. Now, what's, what's wrong with that? The fact of the matter is, you can search far and wide, and you're not going to find somebody who's kept the law of God perfectly since his youth. In fact, most of us have broken the law of God even this morning before we got here. We struggle to keep the commands of God, and yet this young man thinks that he's been good enough to say, I also am good. I have kept the law. Verse 21, Jesus hears him say that he has kept all these laws from his youth. And looking at him, it says, he loved him. Jesus loved the man. And he said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. The young man was disheartened by the saying. And he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. That's why this story with Jesus is often called Jesus and the rich young ruler. This young man had been so successful, so smart with his money, that he had accumulated great wealth and riches. And Jesus says, well, I'm glad to hear that you've kept all those laws since you were a child. That's kind of far-fetched, but let me just give you one more law. If you really want to inherit eternal life, let me give you one more law. He says, sell everything that you have. Give that money to the poor. Just give it all away. Come and follow after me. The young man can't do it. His countenance, his his attitude before that last command was on cloud nine. He was so happy because Jesus listed off all these commands and he thought in his mind, I kept that one. I kept that one. I've done that one. I've, I've fulfilled this law. I get to have eternal life. But what he didn't realize was that the law is it's much more weighty than he realized. And so when he heard that he had to sell all that he had and give it to the poor, his heart fell because he knew that Jesus was asking him to do something that he was not willing to do. This man has missed the heart of the law. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, will teach us something about the law. He says, you have heard it said, you shall not commit murder. But I tell you that he who hates his brother in his heart has committed murder against against his brother. Saying it's not enough to just, to not be uh, indictable in a court of law, to not be convicted guilty of physical sins. But if you have the hatred in your heart that leads to murder, then you're guilty of murder. Then he goes on to say, You have heard it said, and I say to you, do not commit adultery. But I also say to you that if you lust after a woman in your mind, then you have committed adultery against her. What is Jesus saying there? He's challenging us to think that sin is not just what we do, it's what we love. It's where our hearts and our minds are allowed to go. And so this rich young ruler, maybe he was really good at keeping the laws, But he's a sinful man, just like every one of us. Jesus looks upon the man with love because he's like a man who doesn't have a shepherd. He thinks he's shepherd enough for himself. 
that as long as he keeps his nose clean and doesn't get caught doing anything bad, then he's going to inherit eternal life. But what he really needs is someone like Christ. He needs a savior who will come into his life and help him to recognize that it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter how much you work towards uh, earning and deserving heaven, that you still have sin in your life and that still needs to be dealt with. That sin is hanging over us like a guilty cloud. It must be handled in some significant way. The gospel is the answer to our sin. Not our obedience, but the obedience of Jesus Christ. Christ came to this earth to fulfill the law, but he also came to earth to accomplish a great task, to pay the legal penalty for the sins that his people had committed against God. When Christ went to the hill of Calvary and carried his cross up that mountain, and when he was nailed to that cross and lifted up into the air, he was dying a sinner's death. Not because he had sinned, not because he deserved to die, but because we have sinned and we have deserved to die. The wrath of God is revealed against all the wickedness of man. Because God is a true God and must deal with sin, sin has to be punished. Even this young man who thought that he was without sin, he did have sin and that sin needed to be punished. And so Christ would eventually, after all these stories of his life on earth, would go to the cross and would give his life as a sacrifice for many. When he died on the cross, he suffered in the place of those who would trust in him. And on the third day rose because as God in the flesh, death had no power over him. He had victory over the grave and over sin. Now you might ask yourself, well, if the answer to our sin is to just trust in Jesus, then why did Jesus tell this young man one more law? Go and sell all you have and give to the poor and come and follow after me. Is that really necessary for us to all have eternal life? Because I haven't done that. Have you done that? Have you sold all that you have and given it to the poor? I don't think any of us has done that. But what Jesus was saying was not, this is what you've got to do to inherit eternal life. He was shining light on the fact that there was a lack of faith in this young man's heart. That he wasn't trusting in Jesus Christ for his salvation. He was trusting in his own works. And Jesus was revealing the humbling truth that there's always an end to how much we're able and willing to do. Only Christ can fully fulfill the law. And so only Christ can pay for our sins and set us free from sin and from death. So the question that the young man asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life, was not the right question. And Jesus is trying to help him to understand the right question is, what has God done? so that I might inherit eternal life. God so loved the world that He sent His only Son, Jesus Christ, so that whosoever would believe in Jesus and put their faith in Him might not perish, but have everlasting life. Now those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, their guilty record, all the sins that they have ever committed, and every sin that they will ever commit, is then nailed to the cross with Jesus Christ. Their guiltiness before God is washed away by His perfect blood. And now they have a righteousness that they didn't earn, that they didn't come across on their own, but it's a righteousness that was given to them by God as a gift. Jesus Christ has the power to to redeem the guilty sinner, to wash them clean, and to help them belong to the Lord God. 
If salvation belongs to the individual, if it's up to us to work our way to heaven, then who can be saved? No one can. Because we can't do enough to undo our sin. But if salvation belongs to the Lord, and that's what I profess to you today, friends, if salvation is in the hands of the Lord, then all you need to do is come humbly before God and recognize that I can't climb my way to heaven. I can't scratch and claw my way up the ladder to get to the Lord God. He must come down and get me. He must redeem my heart and grab a hold of my mind and attention. He must make me love Him in ways that I would not love Him. And He does that through the work of Jesus Christ. I pray that today, that as you have heard this message of hope and of salvation, you'll realize that hope is not in you becoming better or good enough, but that your hope is in the fact that Jesus Christ was perfect. So His precious blood was good enough to atone for our sins. And if we put our faith in Him and follow Him, then He will indeed give us this promise of eternal life in heaven with Him. Would you bow with me in a word of prayer? Almighty God, You are holy and righteous. It's hard to believe that we can even approach You to speak to You like this because we know we have all broken Your law and that we stand before You as guilty if we do not have Christ. But Father, for those who have Christ, something amazing has been done for us. Our guilt has been put to death on the cross and we have been made a new people. And for those who are still carrying their sin today, I pray, Lord, that you would put it upon their heart to let that burden be left at the cross, God, that they would put that sin in your hands, that they would allow you to suffer in their place, Lord, that they would recognize and receive the gift of grace that only you can give. We praise you, God, for the way that your gift of grace changes us and and makes us hate our sin and makes us love what is holy and good. And I pray that our friends here who are receiving from us today give you glory for the change that you have brought about in our lives. That, Father, as we come today to serve them, we don't do it to earn something for ourselves or to be seen as good people. We come because we serve the one good man, Jesus. We come to serve the God who is above all and who rules over all and has the power to save. Father, it is impossible for us to save ourselves. It would be harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. But Father, with you all things are possible. So help us, God, to bow before you in in gratitude today. Help us to receive the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ, your Son. And we ask these things in his perfect name. Amen.